Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I want to speak this evening about Satan and satanic temptation. I think most artistic depictions of Satan are fascinating, but at the same time misleading. Whether it's Sam Smith's song, Unholy, performed at the Grammys, whether it's a statue of a Satan that was actually erected at a courthouse several years ago to sort of protest a nativity scene that was at that same courthouse. They were trying to show the extent of Uh, religious freedom within our country and to challenge Christian assumptions. Um, But there were also, years ago, medieval depictions of the devil as sort of a monstrous gremlin-like figure that was gobbling up sinners uh, or torture or uh, boiling people alive, and uh, other people have displayed him as sort of a mutant hybrid between a human and a goat. Lots of weird things out there. Again, all of them biblically unsatisfying, but one depiction, only one, which is not famous, Uh, really captured my own imagination and helped me to understand the nature of the devil, at least as reflected in this particular art piece, because I think it was very biblical. You may know that I was an art minor in college, and uh, I was at Bryn Mawr University, and we were to depict um, ancient myths that shape contemporary life. And one person was uh, drawing uh, Hercules, another person was sketching out the tale of Narcissus, and somebody was drawing, or excuse me, painting in a surrealist way, the devil. Now, what was fascinating about this particular art piece was they depicted the devil as a beautiful angel with smooth, lovely Mediterranean skin and long, dark black hair pulled back. Um, He had uh, golden skin and silver wings and this bronze-like glow all about him. And he was smiling serenely while leaning against a tree, uh, kind of like the Buddha, kind of showing the devil like the Buddha under the bow tree. You know, very calm, very peaceful. And in his hands, he was holding this golden wreath, like the golden crown that Caesar used to wear upon his head. And he was surrounded, like St. Francis of Assisi, by all these animals who were staring in his direction, foxes and lambs and dogs and mountain lions and birds all staring at him. But if you began to look closer at this surrealist painting, you began to see what the artist was truly trying to depict. Because the closer you looked, you noticed that these animals are not staring in an arrested posture in front of Satan. They're all dead. And they're all diseased and blighted. And more than that, everything that surrounds the Satan that looks like golden light, it's not golden light. It's that everything around him, all the plants, the trees, and the grass are dead. Uh, And it really does um, capture the seduction of the Satan, the lure of temptation, where he promises by holding this golden crown, eternal life and power, but all who gaze at him are diseased and dead. Well, the character of the Satan doesn't frequently appear in the scripture, especially the Old Testament, at least not directly. 
But there are two major appearances of the Satan in the Bible. Others too, but two main ones. And, and each of them have a lot in common. They both have to do with the temptation of an innocent man. One occurs at the beginning of the Old Testament. The other occurs at the beginning of the New Testament. Um, one occurs in a garden, the other in a desert. Uh, the first occurs to a man who was known as, at least in some texts, a son of God. And the second also affects a man who was known as the son of God. The first temptation affects the first Adam. The second temptation affects the second Adam. And so I want you to have that Satan versus Adam backdrop hanging there as we talk about the temptation of Jesus Christ. And let me just mention a few things about this temptation narrative, though, of course, more could be said. I want to speak about the tempter's assault, the tempter's lure, and the tempter's failure. The tempter's assault is really important. Notice how the devil attacks Jesus. Notice the jugular for which he leaps. You know, Satan doesn't assault Jesus' personality, the fact that he's fasting, his religion, his culture, his haircut, his day job, his race, his taste in clothing. Nope. He goes right to the source of his identity and asks twice, one in verse 3, and one time in verse 3, one time in verse 6, if you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. Satan is challenging something that from the beginning of the New Testament is utterly undisputed and clear as crystal. Announced as early as the genealogies uh, in Matthew's gospel, repeated then uh, from the angel to the Virgin Mary that she would conceive a child who would be known as the son of the Most High, and expressly and publicly communicated at Jesus' own baptism, where the Father rivetingly announces, you are my son, in whom I am well pleased. So this is a public fact at this point. And as soon as Jesus is done being baptized, he's ushered by the Spirit into the wilderness, right? From the water to the dry place. And as soon as he's in the dry place, his identity that was just confirmed by the heavens is assaulted by God's antithesis. If you are the son of God. By the way, this is no small matter. This is the hinge place of Christianity. It all hinges upon Jesus's identity. And this is what separates the men from the boys and the women from the girls. Um, because look, everybody, almost everybody, admires Jesus to one degree or another. It doesn't matter what religious background you have, whether you're a Unitarian or a Buddhist or a Hindu, uh, even some sects within Judaism. Lots of admiration for Jesus of Nazareth as a guru, a teacher, a healer, a mystic, a wonder worker, a revolutionary, somebody who is infinitely impressive. But when you press people and ask, but is he the unique son of God, the eternal offspring of the father? Well, that's another question altogether because that answer creates controversy depending on, well, how you answer it. So it's no small matter this question of Jesus' uniqueness as the only Son of God, and it is no surprise then that Satan seeks to undermine that core matter and that core self-understanding of Jesus. Satan's assault, whether it's in the beginning of the New Testament with Jesus' temptation or the beginning of the Old Testament with Adam and Eve's temptation, is very, very similar. Satan is always getting us, and certainly getting them or attempting to get them, to deny 
the veracity of what God has already established and spoken, what he's already made clear. He does that in the book of Genesis by asking Adam and Eve, did God really say? Did God really say? And there's a universe of dark assumptions and accusations in that question. That was, it's trying to throw off Adam and Eve's understanding of the heavens as well as their personal relationship to the heavens. And now in the desert, Satan re- repeats that similar theme, testing the word of God that was established at Jesus' baptism. Are you sure? If you are the son of God. Right? Uh, identity. And the assaulting of identity is a very serious matter. I have a friend who, in her mid-40s, was interested in her own personal ancestry. And she sent away from one of those kits, the DNA tests, and you evidently send some company somewhere a bit of your DNA, whatever that means. And she did that and discovered all sorts of fascinating things about herself. But But with that test and some other research that she did, she made a shocking discovery that the man she assumed was her biological father was, in fact, not her biological father. No one knew it, but years prior, her mother had had an affair with a man and conceived a child, namely her. She discovered this, and it really wrecked her world, threw her complete, um, threw her conception of herself away. Felt like she had to start again to understand who she really was. And in the midst of this personal meltdown, where now she began to distrust her mother felt like she didn't have the same connection with her father, wondered who her real father really was. She was in, in communication with a, a very noble and lovely Christian woman who, uh, after hearing about this internal trauma and this assault on her identity, wrote Mary a letter and said, Dear Mary, please remember, whether or not you know your biological parents, all of us, every one of us is adopted. What did she mean by that? Well, adopted into the family of God by Jesus, that nobody's isolated, and that ultimately biology is not the most important thing. The most important thing is knowing that you're loved and somebody's had mercy on you. But she experienced the personal assaults of her identity, and that's what the tempter is trying to do to Jesus. We also have the tempter's lure, because Satan often comes with glittering images and treasures beyond count to get you to do certain things. And Jesus received three temptations. There could have been more, but these are the ones that are recorded. Uh, And uh, what's fascinating, of course, is that none of Satan's temptations appear immediately evil. They don't appear evil. He didn't ask Jesus to set up a drug cartel or start stabbing baby seals or, you know, to invade uh, Ukraine. You know, nothing crazy like that. Um, Instead, uh, he offers a hungry man food. How about you just do a little trick and make some bread. And I think there's some altruism laced in that too, because if you can make bread for yourself, what about your whole country that is always on the verge of complete collapse and bankruptcy? You could help a lot of people really quickly. Or this kind of, this sort of near suicidal gesture. How about we take you to the skyscraper of the temple and have you jump? You could prove to everybody that the supernatural is real and not just a a wish fulfillment that it's real, because you would float, and people like floating people. That would get some attention, right? People would admire you and think there's something behind this. That man has some credibility. We can't do that. Bob tried last week. Didn't work out, you know? Um, uh, And then the the last one, the kingdoms of the world. You know, the Messiah, it's prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah is going to reign over anybody every way. How about we just fast forward the process? 
Like, get it done sooner. You could have it all right now. You don't have to wait. Uh, those are the temptations, but I think there's a lure behind all three temptations. There's a lure that goes something like this. How about you authenticate yourself through an obvious and immediate power display? Shock and awe. Right now, authenticate yourself. Show off a little power. Similar temptation in the original Garden of Eden, um, where he tells Adam and Eve the reason that God has forbidden the tree that that offers knowledge of good and evil is because he's terrified that you'll know as he knows that you'll become omniscient like him. He's holding out on you, tempting them with power yeah? in, the, in their immediate, um, in their immediate uh, actuality. And now, tempting Jesus with power, but not just power, friends, power without pain. No cross for you. No cross for you. You know, it is true that the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would be a provisional character and provide for the needs of the world, yes? That he would offer miraculous signs and signals of his ministry and kingdom, and that he would also rule over all nations, all prophesied in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament also said the Messiah must suffer obliteration first. He must be the suffering servant that withers away and is destroyed at our own hands. And Jesus knew this. He knew that suffering was part of the picture. But Satan always wants to blur and obscure or pole vault over the cross. Just get to the glory. I hear people say this to me sometimes, and they're charming at first, and they give me a compliment because they think I'll bite. They think I'm that insecure. I don't know. But they say, Ethan, we love what you're saying. The, the sermon's very nice, very nice. But we think you're a little too negative. You're just so negative. I mean, maybe... What's wrong with a happy Jesus? You know, what's wrong with a little more victory? Why this talk about sin? Why the cross? Well, here's the truth. Here's the truth. In the Old Testament that foreshadows it, and in the New Testament that fulfills it, everything about the Christ's Christness hinges upon the hard wood of the cross. That's not my emphasis. I didn't invent it, it's in the Bible. And Jesus understood that that was key and core to his own vocation. By the way, you remember the time that Jesus called Peter Satan? It's because Peter was saying to Jesus, not the cross, Jesus. No, no, no. I have a plan for you. You're going to grow old. You're going to have silver hair. You're going to look good. You're going to have book deals. You're going to die when you're like 97. It's all going to work out really, really well. And then we'll carry on after you're dead. But we, I got a plan. But I don't want your life to be short-circuited. Jesus calls him Satan because he is representing the satanic um, obstructionist posture of not the cross. Not the cross. Blur the cross. Instead, just get to the glory. Satan, like a vampire, hates the cross. Why? Because the cross, unlike everything else, the cross unmasks Satan's masterpiece, which is accusation what Satan means, the accuser, the accuser of the brethren, the accuser of men and women, the one who stands against us and points out all of our ridiculousness, our flaws, our hideousness on the inside. What does the cross do? Unmakes accusation. Unmakes it. Takes all the bricks out of that wall so that there's no division between you and your maker anymore. So it unmakes the satanic enterprise. And so Satan wants to obliterate the message of the cross. That's the tempter's lure. All glory, no pain. All beauty, no blemishes.
But we also have the tempter's failure. In verses 4, 7, and 10, Jesus repeats this refrain. It is written. It is written. It is written. That is, the exhausted, burned out, fried, starving alive Jesus has one thing on his mind when he's tempted. He doesn't scream out in frustration. He doesn't run away. Instead, he pushes right back. And he pushes back with the already predetermined written word, that which is already established as God's written voice into creation. Takes that and weaponizes it against the tempter. And I think that is really fascinating. I was speaking with an ex-evangelical a few weeks ago. If you don't know what an ex-evangelical is, um, it's a very hard term to understand because some ex-evangelicals, meaning what they mean by that term is, I grew up in a mega church with fog machines and I don't like fog machines anymore. So I'm going to a Lutheran church and so I'm an ex-evangelical. I'm like, okay. And then there are other ex-evangelicals who are like, I want to burn every Christian to death in the whole world and embrace complete ashes and nihilism. Right? That's another form of ex-evangelical. This person that I talk to is, leans in this direction, but still likes me uh, for some reason. I don't know why. But, um, but we were talking about it, and I asked them, in the midst of them boasting about their new freedom, by the way, when somebody's constantly boasting about their own freedom, repeating it over and over and over again, how existentially liberated they feel, they're not trying to convince me, they're trying to convince themselves. But that psychological insight, which is brilliant, aside, uh, I, I do want to say that I asked them, have you been disappointed with any of your ex-evangelical experiences? And to their endless credit, they said yes. And this is what um, they said. I actually wrote it down. They said, when you don't have Jesus or the Bible, your only navigation is your own appetite. Right, that's a very wise thing to say. You know, when you dishelve God from his godhood, or you think you can, you can't, you just put other little deities in his place, but they're butchers. They're much, much harder on you. Uh, and so he was saying that your, your appetites, the dominant appetites in your psyche, which are always changing places, become these dark demigods that rule over you. Yeah, Very wise. Um, but um, what's fascinating, though, is that Jesus, when he was in the wilderness, um, was not governed by his appetite not governed by his yearning, his hunger, his context. Instead, he um, came from a place of scriptural solidity. It is written. Um, he knew his identity from the Old Testament. He knew what the Messiah was going to have to do in order to triumph. He had to perish. He knew all these things, and he embraced it. By the way, I think this is, there's a lot of wisdom to this in terms of our own temptations and our own beleaguered states. Because when you're in a beleaguered state and you're receiving endless temptations to sort of numb out, to not experience the pain and the agony, but just to sort of zone out in some sinful way that will give you the feeling of a narcotic for a little bit, um, uh, the, 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 here's, here's the situation. Whenever that happens to us, uh, we can very often um, make the mistake that our current feelings of inner agony and the temptations we feel to numb out, that that's the only way we're ever going to exist. Here's what I mean. If you've ever been clinically depressed, if you've ever been paralyzed by anxiety, if you've ever had lots of panic attacks, if you have struggled deeply with grief that knows, seems to know no ending, it feels in that moment that it is the most real thing in the universe and that it will last forever and in fact has lasted forever, that you'll never escape it. 
But what Jesus knew, and what we can begin to learn to know, is that there is a ground of being that is even deeper than our present context. Our present context, context may be agonizing, but it is not the only context that will ever exist. The thing that is deeper still is the God who has incarnated himself among us and suffers the blight along with us, is antagonized along with us, dies for us and rises again. That is deeper still than all of the current unpleasantness and temptation that we experience. Um, truth over context, friends. Context is ever-changing, but the ground of being doesn't budge, though the earth give way and though the hearthstones of a continent are rent in two. Never gives way. Now, I had a friend who discovered this personally. His name is Chris Hall. Chris Hall was a professor at Eastern University, but in the 1980s, uh, he was a chaplain in a mental hospital in Switzerland. He was there probably too long, got terribly burned out, and was doubting, based on the condition of so many of his patients and the agonies that were represented by their difficult lives, doubting that God was real at all. And so he wrote, actually, a letter of resignation uh, one day and was uh, hyper-direct and would be hyper-direct with the president of the institution, the hospital. But right before closing time, when he was going to drop off the letter, at 4.55 p.m., he got a phone call. Chaplain, there's a woman dying in room 322. Please go visit her on your way out. So begrudgingly, he throws the, the letter of resignation in his Bible, clutches the Bible in an angry fist, and walks to this lady's room. Six sits next to the woman who is mute by this point. She can write down uh, some words, but she's mute. Sits down, prays a perfunctory prayer, completely gray, ashen, disconnected from the whole situation emotionally, couldn't care less. The woman looks at him, though, with such bonding connection and writes down in her little pad, I know that my Jesus loves me and shows it. Kind of gives a wry fake smile and nods. And then she looks at him again and puts up her finger and writes something else and says, and you, your Jesus loves you too. And showed him. And at that moment, he realized that even though he was depressed and he felt alone and he felt that nobody would be able to reach his pain, that he was seen. He was seen by the ground of being. He was known. He was understood. His pain was felt. He had a transcendent awareness that his context was not the only context that existed, nor the most real one. And so he was delivered. Um, he was delivered by a transcendent truth, by the word of God that came to him. Friends, the, the, the word of God is always truer than even what we're experiencing right now in this moment. Um, and, uh, and so let me offer you this pastoral word, by the way. When you are beset by a difficult context, when you are tempted, when you fail it in terms of temptation, the, the impulse is to flee all things Christian. Stop praying. Don't go to church. Don't hang out with your Christian friends. They drive you crazy anyway, so just don't. And do your own thing. Here's what I'm going to tell you instead. Go through the motions. Just show up. Go through the motions. Why? Because as you go through the motions, it's a tacit and implicit faith statement that says, yes, this is my context. 
Yes, I am riddled with doubt. Yes, I have all sorts of uh, complex feelings inside me that war against even why I'm here. But I'm also acknowledging by my involvement that there may be more going on with the world than my present feelings. There may be a transcendent word that is given to me that might help me in this present moment and might govern my future uh, to a great degree. Well, Jesus pushes back. It is written, the tempter flees. Jesus defeats him by citing the deep magic of the sacred scripture. Now, this text, friends, is ultimately about Jesus's triumph as the second Adam over the failure of the first. The first Adam uh, succumbs to temptation. Jesus does not. But I think there are some lessons for us as we too face temptation. Uh, First, something about assault, the tempter's assault. Your identity, just as Jesus's identity, but your given identity as a child God will be assaulted. He will go for the jugular. He doesn't care about your haircut or where you live. He cares about your awareness of your own belonging. And so there's going to be a lot of lies sent your way about your unfitness, about the fact that you are defined only and solely by your deepest regret that no one knows about till this day. Um, Or the biggest lie, the cross is not enough for you. Enough for other people, maybe, but not for you. Because you've crossed the dark Rubicon into a country that Jesus doesn't even dare to tread in. But the immunity to those kind of assaults happens when you're re-secured in the gospel. And what does the gospel teach us? That there is now no condemnation. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus ever. Whether you think you're rotten or not, uh, Jesus has decided that you are um, eternally loved, cleansed, forgiven, adopted, brought near. And that that is the definitive word of God over your life that no one can pluck him pluck you from the hand of Christ. No one. But sometimes we're assaulted. Sometimes we're lured, right? The temptation lures us into power games, power without humility, power without the cross. By the way, Satan lures us towards power, not because he wants us to be powerful, but because he knows we'll abuse that power and then completely self-destruct like Icarus. So it's just another way that he assaults us. It's just a different route to get to the same end. And we can have power games in our own heads in all sorts of ways. We can play the raw ambition game at work. We can try to be the most you know, socially uh, advantaged or attractive. We can um, want to be famous and significant. And uh, we can want the best title in the room. Or the mo- we can be the most argumentative or intellectually superior. We can have the impeccable family without blemishes and have like the, the nine-year-old who is working on her second novel. Or we can have lots of sensual fantasies where we're the central figure in it. And, you know, we're the powerful center of everybody's attraction. Friend, be, friends, beware those power games in your own head. Beware what's happening in your own skull. There are lots of, um, there's lots of satanic impulses in such power games. Beware ambition. True power, true power always involves dependence, humility, and vulnerability. That's what we see in Jesus. There is no one more powerful than Jesus of Nazareth, and yet he constantly exemplified openness, dependence, humility, and vulnerability. That's something about us, the assault against us, the lures towards us, but now something about failure. We come here tonight to celebrate that uh, wicked energy, defilement, Satan's power and temptation has ultimately failed, ultimately failed. 
And we know that. How do we know it? Well, we know it from the first temptation against Adam because when, um, when Satan began to tempt Adam and then when Adam succumbed, there was a curse placed on the serpent. Do you remember this? The curse said that someday a descendant of Eve, uh, one single descendant, would crush the head of the serpent even though the serpent would bite the heel of the one who crushed him. Meaning there are two victims here, but only one of them becomes a victor. And that one was written about in St. Paul's letter to the Romans. Paul wrote about the effect of Jesus' victory, not just being for himself, but for all of us. He writes, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. That is to say, not, um, uh, not only does Jesus' obedience to God and his non-obedience to Satan helps ha- help him, it saves us. It saves us and it counts for us. Not, or to put it another way, not only has the tempter failed to damn Christ, he's failed to damn you along with Christ. Accusation against you has been completely drowned in the blood of the cross. So, In this life, we may succeed against individual temptations. And when we succeed against them, something about the satanic kingdom loses and is obliterated. We may succeed. We may fail. But ultimately and everlastingly, we belong to the one who was the victor, the second Adam who overcame the damage of the first. And to quote Paul at the end of his letter to the Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Amen.